World Podcast, brought to you in association with MS Amlin Boat Insurance. Hello and welcome to the Waterways World Podcast. I'm Bobby Cowling, the editor of the magazine, and today we are going to be talking about roving traders. That's independent shops housed on narrowboats, which continuously cruise the inland waterways network to sell a variety of wares, be it dog treats or pizzas, wool or vinyl records. With me to discuss this is the magazine's deputy editor Sarah Henshaw. Sarah was herself a roving trader aboard her narrowboat bookshop The Book Barge and she wrote a fascinating account of her experiences in the travelogue cum memoir The Bookshop That Floated Away. And as we'll hear she has also embarked on several other waterways adventures, most notably crossing the English Channel aboard her narrowboat Joseph. So, without further ado, let's talk to Sarah. So Sarah, this culture of roving traders, it's something that's come up on the network fairly recently, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, canals have always been used for trade and commerce, but the the retail aspects of the idea of a floating shop is relatively new, definitely. Um, I set up my boat bookshop in 2009, at which point there were already a fair few roving traders around, but it's certainly grown hugely in the years since. And I think um, latest figures from Canal and River Trust put it, the number of trading boats at around the 300 mark. So yeah, there's plenty of them around. And I mean, they really do sell the full gamut of products, don't they? Um, Mm. I mentioned some in my introduction, but there's there's vaping shops, there's uh, lingerie now. Cheese boats, jam boats, greetings cards, records, books, bottle shops. Um, a marina where it used to be more, there's a painter pot ceramic studio now on a boat. But yeah, everything. So there's a full range. And there's a boulangerie in London as well. That's one of the most recent, I think. Yeah, probably the the most recent. They they opened up in um, lockdown, actually. A very yeah. <laughs> high risk time to, to start a business, but they're doing brilliantly, so... So good luck to them. Oh, that's good news. And they're a French couple, aren't they? Yeah, Lindsay and Jeremy. Um, and their shop's called The Floating Boulangerie. So how did you get into the whole boating business? In quite a roundabout way. Um, I wasn't a boater. I'd been on one high boat holiday in my life, actually, as a child. So I knew nothing about the canals. Um, I had very little interest in finding out more about them, actually, at the time. But... Um, I'm a book nerd, so I suppose there'd always been a latent desire to own my own bookshop. Um, I think that's a dream for for all English graduates, (laughs) it's standard. Um, I'd always written it off, though, as I always thought it would be too prohibitively expensive on the high street with the rent and business rates and buying in enough stock just to fill the space. And it was only really when I visited um, Barton Marina for the first time on on the Trenton Mersey near Litchfield that it dawned on me that a narrowboat might be an alternative so the marina was um, relatively new at the time it was 2009 and i was struck by how well set up for retail it already was so there were loads of shop fronts facing onto the moorings and there was this lovely wide promenade that ran past them and i figured if i could get a boat somehow and more up alongside them then a shop might be viable there instead because there was certainly um the footfall yeah 
And actually, I thought the fact of it being on a boat could work to my advantage because having such a small space to to stock and curate seemed a lot less intimidating as a way to start off in retail. And also, um, I guess having a USP, so the fact that the shop actually floated, I thought it might be some cushion against the economic downturn at the time because this was, like I said, 2009, so right in the middle of the financial crisis. And there was bad some time to be starting a business, yeah. Bad time. There was some horrible statistic that I think independent bookshops were closing at a rate of about two a week. So anything to mark my shop out as different and exciting, I suppose, would be a massive advantage. So did it work then? It did. To begin with, it worked really well. I mean, it just thrived off the novelty value. People really wanted to come on a boat. You see all these boats moored in marinas, but there's no chance for members of the public to actually snoop around. So I think most people came aboard out of curiosity and then kind of bought a book as a goodwill gesture, even if they weren't <laughs> <laughs> if they weren't into reading per se. So yeah, it did. Um, but then I guess after about six months, a year, you become the same as any other bookshop but actually less do you mean less impressive it becomes familiar yeah you become familiar and you can't I couldn't actually compete with with high street bookshops because I just wasn't holding enough stock so then yeah things started to get tougher is that when you came up with the idea of taking the business on the road or on the water yeah I mean like I said I had I had no experience of narrow boating so I bought the shop just to be the boat just to be a shop space um and the idea of the move yeah the idea to move for six months was kind of born out of that desperation because I thought I was if I didn't do anything I'd end up closing within probably the same time or less so whereabouts did you travel during your tour of the country well, I sketched a sort of vague figure of eight so starting in the Midlands and then heading down south to London um up along the Kennet and Avon after to Bath and Bristol and then up north to Manchester, um, Leeds, and then back down again. So in all, it took six months. But you took in a lot of big cities along the way. Yeah, I was so surprised. My waterways, like I was so ignorant about, about the waterways and and pleasantly surprised by how many big cities and towns are connected and there are canal, canal towns. Were there any kind of retail hotspots on that on the way yeah definitely all the all the usual suspects the ones that you would anticipate so London is obviously the very best and there's there's certain honeypots along the Regent's Canal like Broadway Market is particularly brilliant at a weekend Camden's always busy and lively um and then all the familiar canal towns which I just wasn't aware of at the time at places like Braunston and Stoke Bruin um do get regular tourist footfall which helps and you visited London during that trip Yes, I spent uh, a lot longer than I'd planned in London, actually, just because, I mean, business side, it was a booming. It was amazing. Um, but it was really exciting from like a social, personal point of view as well, because there's just a whole different breed of boater in London. I mean, it's a, sort of younger, livelier, more people living aboard. So this was 2011 when I was when I was visiting. Um, so just at the start of the explosion, liveaboards down there. And it just felt, yeah, busy and kind of happening. But I'm not sure. Actually, I'm not sure how I'd feel about revisiting it as a roving trader today because I just, moorings were already kind of a headache when I was when I was down there all those years ago. So I imagine it would be even more problematic now. I imagine so. And roving traders don't get preferential treatment, do they? 
No, not at all. I mean, you can't you can't just ring CRT up and say, can I book this space at um, King's Place or yeah, outside Broadway Market for the bank holiday weekend? I think um, recently, and I don't know if this still applies, but recently they did say roving traders could um, say if, if you arrive somewhere on a Friday night, you could stay till Monday morning. So the 48 hour rule was sort of relaxed slightly. So you had two full days of trading on the Saturday and Sunday. Yeah, as I said, I'm not sure if it still applies and I'm not sure where it applies, if it's true of all visitor moorings or not. And you also stayed in Bristol, didn't you? I did, yes. And that was a very different experience, wasn't it? It was a very different experience, um, mainly because of my naivety. I didn't realise that um, Canal and River Trust, or British Waterways as it was then, weren't the navigation authority for Bristol. So it's a separate, it's a separate um, identity. So you, as you come into the city, you pay a different license. And I'd spoken to the lock keeper about the fact that um, I was a bookshop, I was a roving trader. And he had very kindly suggested somewhere where I might get most footfall, which was um, outside the Arnolfini Arts Centre. So right in the middle of Bristol, mm. moored up, opened up the A-frame outside um, and had customers aboard. And then a day later, got a, a visit from the harbour master to say that I absolutely wasn't allowed to to trade at all and I was kind of stuck because um at the time um British Waterways were working on a lock near Bath so I couldn't leave I couldn't leave Bristol and my um I think I booked to go at the Bristol Channel like a week later so I was stuck I think I had like seven or ten days yeah. where I kind of had to I, thought I had to trade so I just carried on doing it regardless <laughs> regardless <laughs> I got visited by two policemen who told me again that I absolutely couldn't couldn't trade um and then I got local media involved because I was furious about this. I did think it was my ordained right to be able to flog books to the people of Bristol for some reason. Well, that's um, right, yeah. <laughs> and in the end, um, the whole thing was resolved because Bristol Council very, very kindly agreed to um, let me have um, a market stall instead at the Mills Market. So, so everything was fine. <laughs> All turned out well. That's brave. All that's turned brave. out well. Um, I heard a rumour, Sarah, that when you set off on your boat toy, you didn't actually have a working <laughs> toilet. You know, you know this isn't a rumour. You know this is fact. I'm still baffled. Well, the boats still recognise on the network. Well, it, at least it was when I was still in the UK, not like the floating bookshop. But you're the person that didn't have a toilet on. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I was quite, um, I just wanted it all as a shop space. Like I said, I didn't have any plans when I opened up to to live on it or to move it at all so it was all bookshelf and a very small sort of desk until in the middle um and you felt that uh, installing a toilet would eat into your books yes i was like outraged at the idea of putting (laughs) personal comfort ahead of book sales at the time i don't know what i was thinking (sighs) yeah i nearly got around it by um well the toilet was kind of harder but the sort of lack of kitchen and and um, cooking facilities I got round by um, bartering books for sort of pub meals or home-cooked meals along the way. I imagine you frequented a, a lot of pubs on there. Were, there were a lot of pubs. It's one of the joys of canal boating, isn't it? I think that's, that's universal. Um, putting lavatorial matters to one side, um, were there any really positive experience to come out of your tour of the waterways it's where I sort of developed my love and and interest in the waterways from like I said I had no 
no understanding of the heritage and the people the people on the waterways beforehand and it really opened my eyes it's such a it's such an amazing way to see the country as well I mean everyone says this when I when I interview people now about mm. the, the sort of pros and cons of living abroad everyone says it it's just for a new insight into into sort of familiar places I've lived in London for quite a few years before um visiting it on the boat and I'd hate it when I lived there in a in like rented accommodation I absolutely hated it going back on your own terms with your own house and business was a completely different experience I can see that yes um was it during this period that you became interested in canal literature <laughs> I did and this is another thing that like sort of fueled the now obsession with the waterways there's a book called um, Maiden's Trip by one of the original they're called Idle Woman so one of the original women who worked on the canals during the second world war um which is just so beautiful so charming and it yeah really fired up my um enthusiasm for all things canaling and what about bad experiences because well it's never easy as a boater is it so yeah it's never easy and as a raving trader as well it's really frustrating just having the time that takes just guessing between places it's like two or three days where you can effectively write off any trade because you're just doing like a whole series of locks or just getting wet at the tiller so there is yeah there's there's bad stuff and there's a few things that kind of happened in that time that um yeah weren't great either the boat was broken into there's a few times it was um people like untied the mooring lines at night which is just a really frightening thing if you're staying on there by yourself that's always frightening what happened with the break-in um, that was near Leamington Spa. It wasn't actually in Leamington Spa because I'd been told to move out of Leamington Spa because there was a risk of breaking. So I'd moved to a really quiet little hamlet called Radford Summerley in, in Warwickshire and um, tied up there for the night and gone home to do about three weeks of laundry and came back the next day. Yeah, it had just been broken into. All my takings had gone, um, engines had been nicked, um, cameras, yeah, laptops devastating yeah you actually wrote about that didn't you mm. in your I, I should I have given your uh mentioned your book in the introduction oh, thank you. it's called the bookshop that floated away it is. and it was published was it three or four years ago now yes uh and I'm gonna say 2014 yes how did that come about very fortuitously um I was keeping a blog as I was traveling around the network and it got picked up by a publisher who said do you want to turn it into a book and they gave me the title so I didn't choose that but oh. um in every other respect there was like complete freedom to write what I wanted which was a yeah a really a really lovely thing well it's a cracking book it is a great read and <laughs> genuinely is that. Yeah, I do have, have to say that but it genuinely <laughs> is as well I really enjoyed it and uh it's now it's recently been published in Germany yeah, who would have thought there was a there was an appetite for it in, in Germany? Seems a very strange. Well, um, they're big on boats over there. They are big on boats, yes. As well as having the book published, another of your achievements is that you've crossed the channel in a narrowboat. Yes, I did very ill-advisedly. I certainly don't recommend it to anyone else with either okay. a traded boat or any any type Pe- of narrowboat. People boat. want to know why. Um, that was born actually the dream was sort of born out of that six six month trip that I was describing when I moored in London there was a boat a few boat a few um, craft down from me called I don't know what it was called it was a circus boat basically and it was two French women who were trapeze artists who did shows every now and then 
and I was fascinated by them. I never actually got a chance to speak to them because I always, I was always um, like the shop was open during the day, which is when they were doing their shows, and they were always out at night when I tried to, um, yeah, knock on and chat to them. But um, that someone told me that they had crossed the channel from, yeah, France to London, and I just became obsessed with this idea and didn't really grasp at the time that they didn't have a narrow boat they were on a wide beam and perfectly <laughs> capable of going to sea i just thought that's me i'm going to do it the other way how exciting um yeah so you didn't make a you didn't make a distinction between a, a sea no, I mean, craft I just, like, and inland waterways <laughs> no. i mean i sort of like realized that it was twice the size of mine but i hadn't thought about like the underwater structure and that they might have a keel or, and that i was very definitely flat bottomed and would struggle a bit more so that's where the idea was conceived, but you actually did, you did pursue it. And... I did pursue it. And I, didn't, I, I wasn't stupid about it. I did like lots of like effectively trials on, on tidal water. So I went up the Bristol Channel. Um, I've been down the Thames a few times. Um, I got a pilot involved as well because I wasn't confident with like the navigational aspects and, and dodging um, ferries and, and um, tankers and things like that. Um <laughs> And had to sort of adapt the boat slightly as well, so just make sure no water was going to come in, and um, yeah, and wait for very calm weather too, which is the main. Yes, we should point out that it was a a huge operation, really. For it was, to take it on. really was. It wasn't it's not taken a, lightly at all. No, and it's it wasn't like you you know one day just decided you were going to head out to France, you know. It no, was, uh, it and was actually I hated it. Of- I mean, <laughs> I'd looked forward to it for so long, but as soon as we were out there, I was like, I felt sick, actually like physically seasick and just terrified the whole time. So, yeah. But you made it. So, made it. Uh, <laughs> made it. <laughs> what was the, um, we had something in one of the recent issues that more people um, have... Yeah, more people have been to the moon than crossed the channel in a narrow boat. There you go, there's a bit of trivia. That's a good So there you go. <laughs> Great claim. <laughs> well done. <laughs> it is crazy. Okay, so what about the um, cost of becoming a roving trader? Um, in terms of boat license, the cost difference isn't much at all. I think it's only about £100 extra on top of your, your usual leisure cruising license. So that's not... Right. I mean, it makes sense. If you've got a hobby or interest and you're a liverboard boat or continuous cruiser, it does make sense, I think, to try and sell something if you can. Um, but there's all sorts of other things that you need to think about too. I mean, there's insurance... Um, you have to get a non-private boat safety certificate if you're having people on your boat and you're getting customers on it as opposed to like serving them from the hatch. Um, you'll have to open your yeah, business bank account, um, probably have some kind of facility for accepting card payments, yeah, all that, all that kind of stuff. So just going back to the insurance, there's a difference between serving from a hatch and having people on board the boat. Yeah, insurance is the biggest whack that you're going to, have I think I said like in terms of license it's only a bit extra but in terms of insurance you'll notice your premiums jump considerably because I was I was having customers on on board and doing events in the evening and also sometimes serving um, um coffee and wine and stuff if there were if there were authors aboard um 
you can definitely do it cheaper if you just sell from the hatch, for example. It seems to me that there's a growing number of roving traders that are now serving food and drink. Mm. Um, there's a couple, there's a couple of pizza boats on the network. Yeah, um, a pizza boat, yeah. But it does seem to me that that's something that's growing the the food and drink aspect of that. Um, there's a lot of rules and regulations to that, as you can uh, imagine. But mm. I think the best place is the I think the Canal River Trust website has a a page on roving traders. Um, yeah, actually, their page explicitly advises that if you're thinking of doing a food and drink operation, you should think about getting a permanent mooring, because in their experience, being roving and serving drinks and food doesn't work as well but there are there are there are people that buck the trend we were talking about the the floating boulangerie earlier when I interviewed them for the magazine actually a few months ago and asked them this question specifically and they said that for the same reason that um I found with the book barge that it's having the novelty factor helps and they think that their business is better without returning customers but just having new customers each time and they said there's such a buzz when they moor at a different place that that it really works also they find quite a a small stretch it's not like they're going around the network so theoretically i mean if you if you did want croissants from them every day you could you could find them somewhere in london i mean they're quite exceptional aren't they but you imagine for for other types of food and drink yeah it would just um, be hard organizing supplies as well wouldn't it i mean yes your fresh stuff so that's one of the that's that is one of the key considerations isn't it getting stock yeah i mean i used to rely i did it in like crazy ways i'd go into like nearby pubs and ask if they'd accept deliveries from me or or rely on the goodwill of um family and friends and get them to drive down with these boxes of books but it's not easy <laughs> you do have to be pretty organized and think ahead when you were on the boat you would doing it running this as a full-time enterprise yeah um am i right in thinking that a lot of roving traders it's more of a it can be a part-time almost like an extension of a hobby yeah it could be i mean that's why i was saying it makes sense to if you've got a hobby or interest that is that you can make a sort of retail business out of it makes sense to Mm. pay that extra hundred pounds for a license i think most people are on the waterways just not to not to become sort of millionaires or to make any money but from it, but just to enjoy enjoy travelling. So it can just be like a perk to that, kind of like a, a bonus by yeah. having a bit of extra yeah. cost maybe to go out for a couple of meals twice a week or something. We should um, point out probably at this point that there's a Roving Traders Association. Mm, and they're excellent. Yeah. And the last time I looked, it was uh, pretty cheap to join. I think it's around about £10 a year. You get loads of advice on from accounting to advertising. Um, and the, the biggest the biggest advantage of joining is that you get access to their, to their floating markets, which uh, are a mainstay for a lot of um, roving traders out there. So that's that's um, when a group of roving traders just come together in mm. one place on the network and, and create a... Uh, an event mm. and they're really popular i mean they're such nice things to go to it's basically like a, a, a farmer's market on a saturday i guess but on the on the canal the, yeah just just one thing i'm thinking about in uh, with that retail aspect um sounds like a frivolous question perhaps but in this uh increasingly cashless economy um would you advise 
Roving Traders to get a card machine. Yeah, and I definitely, I definitely would. And things are a lot easier now. I, um, I mean, I think I shelled out about seven or eight hundred quid on one of those old-fashioned um, card machines that you still see in some shops. But you can do it. I think PayPal offers sort of a card reader, which is kind of keyring size, and that's only about fifty pounds. You're gonna, they're gonna take a, a cut of each transaction, I suppose. But yeah, there are cheaper ways of of doing it. But I would definitely advise that if you're gonna, if you want to make a proper go of it, yeah. With regard to roving traders and floating markets, do you think there's an argument that it's contributing to the over commercialization of the waterways? Well, we're not talking about like huge soulless corporations, are we? No one's suggesting we put like Sports Direct on the Shropshire Union. These are all independent, interesting, well curated, one off boutique shops. And I think they're a huge asset and actually have been crucial probably to attracting new people to our waterways in recent years. I think um, people who might not be interested in buying a boat themselves per se, but who's still curious about what the inside of a narrowboat looks like and they want to ask questions about liveaboard lifestyle, etc. Those people would never ordinarily get an opportunity to, to do that unless being explicitly invited aboard by a roving trader. So I think, yeah, I do think they're a big draw and a, a big asset. Um, as you say, they engage a lot of people who um, don't have involvement otherwise in the waterways, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, an opportunity for somebody on the towpath to communicate and engage with somebody on a boat, and that that can only be a Mm. good thing, I guess, yeah. Mm. Do you have a favourite roving trader, Sarah? Yes, I do. I have to say the Jam Butty, because um, Helen and Andy, who, who run it, were actually my very first customers when I started moving the boat. Really? they become such good friends and are just sort of mine of waterways knowledge. Um, yeah. Yeah, the stuff they sell is amazing. I mean, all their jams and chutneys are, are brilliant. And the boat, the boats, I should say now, because they've since um, bought a butty, which they tow around. Um, yeah, they just look beautiful. So that's, a, that's, I mean, that's quite an unusual op- option for a roving trader, a butty. Yeah. But, uh, and I definitely wouldn't You can see why it makes sense. Into two boats. I mean, yeah, play it. Safer, like uh, try your ideas out in a small way first and see if there's a demand before shelling out on a whole new boat just to house your your shop. Still, it would be nice, I imagine, to have your living quarters uh, separate I know. from your. That would be amazing. Really, really challenging. Someone once came aboard um, just around about Christmas time, and I was living on it at the time. Um, so I had a Christmas tree up and some presents around it, and they tried to to buy one of my Christmas presents <laughs> someone had given me, which is a very bizarre thing. And I've also had people sort of like pulling out cupboards and things and dirty laundry falling out. So it's really hard. It is really hard if you're a liveaboard boater to separate the business and personal aspect. So that's something to be aware of too if you're thinking of getting into the roving trading game. Um, yeah, be prepared for people to be knocking at your your door in the evening, like well up to in, to like ten or eleven o'clock, because they'll see they'll see the um, branding on the side of your boat and just assume see a light on and assume that you're fair game to really open. Still, it's crazy. It's crazy <laughs> what people do. I didn't know that. That's that's kind of mind blowing. <laughs> eleven o'clock at night. Yeah, I'm usually drunk. I have to say. <laughs> So what kind of bookshop would be open at 11 o'clock at night? <laughs> oh dear. Um, should point out, Sarah, that uh, roving traders have been particularly hard hit by the lockdown. 
yeah, I mean, all floating markets have been have been cancelled. I presume they're still they're still not going on. There have been online um, alternatives, but it's not it's not quite the same as you can imagine. No, um, I did hear a really sad story about the the barge and booze which moors in Stoke outside the the Britannia Stadium. Um, yeah. And because obviously he's selling sort of perishable goods like real ale and stuff, he's had to basically drink all his stock himself because oh, it's dear. just a right um, I spoke to the record deck as well, Luke, who owns that. He said um, he's on about 20, well, during lockdown, he was on about 20 to 30% of of usual turnover. So, yeah, it's pretty great for a lot of, a lot of roving traders. And I guess they don't get government support do they you do i mean if you're self-employed there's definitely there's definitely government aid for you um i'd also advise um setting up sort of if you can an online presence as well i mean luke from the record deck talked about how his ebay sites and his discog website has really helped boost um sales in the meantime when you can't actually physically trade to people face to face I, I I guess that 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 would be good advice to a roving trader at any point. Is it? It really you have would. An online you think about the seasonality of of roving trading as well. Like it's amazing during summer when people are out and about on the towpath, but over winter, the weather is just going to put a lot of people off visiting their local waterways. So there's just going to be fewer and fewer people about. So yeah, you need to um, where you can think about how you can still make money year round. Do you think many roving traders rely on it as their sole source of income? They might rely on it for their sole source of income, but I don't think anyone goes into it to make a quick buck. I think um, it would be <laughs> near impossible to do that. Um, yeah, they're doing it out of love and because they're doing it because they enjoy the lifestyle, I guess, which is um, which are both good reasons to, <laughs> to have a business. What's happened to Joseph now? Your your book your bookshop oh no. well right now he is sitting empty in a port in the middle of france in burgundy um i'm half half painting the interior and trying to to do it up and reopen i hope within the next few months um but with yeah covid ongoing i'm still not quite sure how to do it safely and um yeah. reopening as a bookshop yeah, a bookshop, or I think I'd have to like diversify as well and offer it's accommodation to. Um, I'm not sure how many English language readers there are in rural France, but <laughs> so I think I'd need an extra stream of income. So you'd stock primarily English books. I'd probably do both. I mean, it's on a very touristy yeah. canal, the Canal de Nivernais, so you do get a lot of Americans, Australians, Brits. Um, so it'd be fine in summer, I think, as a as a mainly English language bookshop, but yeah, it would be it would be nice to have some have the option to stay over and do that kind of yeah accommodation as well. But you no longer live aboard the boat. No, I moved off uh, three years ago. What do you miss about life afloat? Anything? I mean, you were on on there for quite a long time, and really point out, you didn't just yeah. How long? How long did you I, live on the boat? Uh, since about twenty fourteen. I think I moved on permanently and in between before then I was doing like yeah like that six month trip um, and a few other bits and pieces but um 
Yeah, I did. I have added. I'd like to point out there is now a toilet. Uh, there is a kitchen <laughs> and bed. I don't have to like sleep in a sleeping bag on the floor anymore. And the children sit. <laughs> it's just. It's You've more come a long way. I've come a long way. <laughs> Look at me now. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sarah, um, thank you for your time today. It's a pleasure. Um, good, and uh, I think we should. Um, well, really, quite frankly, we've got to get on and do some proper work. <laughs> <laughs> we probably should. Choosing the right insurance for your narrowboat Y-Beamal cruiser can be hard work, but the friendly team at MS Amlin Boat Insurance will provide a quote tailored specifically to your boating needs and really take the hassle out of insuring your boat. Call 01732 223 650 or visit boatinsure.co.uk.